So we left off last week in verse 24. And um, as I began studying, my intention was to pick up in 25 and go all the way through chapter seven. And we're not gonna. Um, I was kind of looking at it and we could have done it, it would have been super long. And sometimes there's kind of like a point where you either have to go kind of short or really long. And so I opted for the kind of short this week, and then we'll get into chapter seven next week, just because there's so much good stuff in this passage and in chapter seven, I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna shortchange any of it. So um, we pick up the text this morning in verse 25. And last week, you may remember, we began to look at the life and times of a man named Gideon. You remember we found the, the hero of our story, that mighty man of valor, hiding in a wine press. He was down there in a hole in the ground, threshing wheat. Remember, he's down there hiding from the Midianite raiders. And while he's down there, remember the Lord shows up under the terebinth tree. And he says, hey, mighty man of valor, what are you doing down there hiding in that hole in the ground? He says, don't you know, I wanna use you to redeem my people. I wanna use you to set my people free. And Gideon says, well, how do I know it's really you, Lord? And remember, this whole little event unfolds. Gideon goes home, he slaughters a goat, he cooks it, he bakes some cakes, he comes back and he sets it on the stone and offers it to the Lord. I remember the Lord takes his staff and he touches it to the meal and the whole thing just, it burns up like your mother-in-law's cooking. Just, I don't even know why I said that, that just popped into my head. That wasn't a pre-planned joke or anything. Very brave indeed, huh? Right, the Lord just consumes it. And Gideon says, all right, good enough. And as we pick up the text in verse 25, we continue to see this drama begin to unfold. It says, that night, the same night that this whole event took place, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there, with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So the Lord says, okay, Gideon, here's the plan. Here's what we're gonna do. Before I use you to do mighty things, before I use you to throw off the shackles of the Midianite oppression, he says, first, we're gonna clean house a little bit. First, we're gonna get the idols out of your own house, and then I'll use you to deliver the people. He says, Gideon, before I use you, you need to get your life straightened out. Before I use you, you need to get your house in order. And it reminds me a little bit of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Remember, Peter's writing to the church there and he says this. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What Peter says is this. He says, look, the time has come for judgment to begin in the household of God. He says, you guys need to do some housekeeping. You need to clean your own house. You need to get your house in order. He says, because everybody is going to stand before God on judgment day. Every one of us is going to have to give an account of our lives. And Peter says, look, it's better for you to deal with your own issues. It's better for you to, to root out sin in your own life and repent of it rather than to have the Lord deal with it. And the Lord in our text here in Gideon says, listen, Gideon, your first mission, the first thing you need to do is get rid of the idols in your own house. The Lord says, before you can start working on my behalf, before you can start telling other people what to do and how to live, you need to deal with your own issues. And he says, here's the plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your daddy's ox, take his bull, and you're going to go down and back into town, and you're going to pull down your dad's idols. That statue of, of Baal that he has, that Asherah pole, you're going to use the ox to pull it down. You're going to use the axe, and you're going to chop that pole down. And so that's what Gideon does. He tears down the altar of Baal, and he builds a new altar to the Lord. And he chops down that Asherah pole. And an Asherah pole is, is similar to like, you know, we're in the Northwest, right? And the Indians have, they have a, to Native American, sorry. The Native Americans have, have totem poles, right? And an Asherah pole would have been similar to that. Except oftentimes they were, instead of like taking a tree and then carving it up and planting it in the ground, they took a tree that was already existing in the ground, that was already rooted, and they would strip the branches off of it, and they would carve it, and they would paint it and decorate it. So that's what an Asherah pole was. So Gideon, he chops down the Asherah pole, and he puts the firewood on top of the altar, and he ignites it, and he offers this ox, this bull, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, the New Testament, or the Old Testament rather, it prescri prescribes a, a lot of different kinds of offerings. And a bull was typically for a sin offering. What would happen is the people, they would bring the animal in as a sin offering. And they would get there to the tabernacle. Remember at this point, the, the temple hadn't been built yet. So they would bring the bull into the tabernacle and the priests would, would take the person's hand and they put it on the head of the animal, sort of symbolically transferring the sin of the person onto the animal. And then he would take a knife and he would slit the animal's throat. They would sacrifice the animal. And, and, and the blood of that animal, it would symbolically cover the person's sin. Because remember it says, without the shedding of blood, what's it say? There is no remission of sins. And so this whole sacrificial process, it was intended to teach the people that sin causes death. 
that sin requires sacrifice, that sin requires the shedding of blood. And really, it was preparing the people for the arrival of the Messiah who would shed his own blood to pay for their sins, to pay for our sins. It's preparing the people for the arrival of the Christ who would take our sins upon himself. And remember, Paul says concerning Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin upon himself. Our sin was transferred to him, just like this Old Testament ritual. And so this event here in Judges 6, it doesn't happen at the tabernacle, and a priest didn't preside over it, but it was done at the Lord's request. And it looks very much like the sin offering that took place in the temple. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I love this verse. Gideon says, okay, Lord, I'm going to obey you. But it's a little bit scary. I'm going to obey you, but I'm a little bit afraid. How about if I go do it at nighttime instead when no one is looking? You know, how about if I do it when nobody can see me? You know, it reminds me a little bit of John chapter 3. Remember in John chapter 3, you know, there's all this, um, you know, all this, all this hype going on about Jesus, and people are really wondering who he is, and they're trying to look into it. And it says that there was a man in verse 1, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so we have this guy, and he's, got, he's a man of, of position, a man of power, a man of authority, a man that people look to. And it says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus shows up at nighttime, and he has this meeting with Jesus, right? And he says, look, Jesus, there's something about you. We know that you're sent by God. Why did Nicodemus come at nighttime? We don't know for sure, but it seems like maybe at this point, he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus in daytime. He didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus in public. I mean, after all, what would his peers think? How would people react? Seems like it's sort of the same thing here in Judges chapter six, right? Gideon says, what are people gonna think if I take this radical action? And he says, and I don't want people to turn on me. And it wasn't just a matter of, of peer pressure with Gideon here, right? And I'm sure that was it. And peer pressure is a powerful thing. Peer pressure motivates us to do a lot of stupid things and not to do a lot of things we should do. You know, and I think partly he was worried about that, right? He was worried about losing his, his family over this step of faith. And sometimes that is a legitimate cost of serving the Lord, isn't it? Jesus says in Luke 15, and he's talking here about the cost of discipleship, and he says this, starting in verse 51. Do you think 
that I have come to give peace on earth? That's interesting as we are moving into the Christmas season, right? Where that message was proclaimed, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we talk about the peace of God and all these things. And Jesus here says, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? You know, not in that sense. He says, no, I tell you, rather division. For from now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What Jesus is saying is this. Sometimes serving the Lord, it causes division. Sometimes serving God causes division even in your own family. And I know that many of us here, we have divisions in our own family, don't we? Some of us have chosen to serve God and some of us have chosen to reject the Lord. And that's caused a division. It's caused separation. It's caused heartache. And sometimes the cost of following the Lord, the cost of rejecting the world will include your own family rejecting you because they're still a part of the world. And Gideon here, he's worried, I think, about that. He's worried about losing his family, but he's also worried about the whole village trying to kill him, which is also a serious matter, right? And he was scared. And and I think it's easy for us to criticize Gideon. Oh, you know, he had a lack of faith. He did it at nighttime when nobody was looking. But at least he's taking action, right? At least he's doing something. He's scared, but he still obeys the Lord, doesn't he? His faith is weak, but he still did what he was told. And we talked about this last week. A weak faith in God is far superior to a strong faith in yourself, isn't it? A weak faith in an all-powerful God is infinitely better than a strong faith in anything less than God. A less, a less than perfect faith is supremely better than a complete and perfect faith in anything that's finite. Gideon, he's scared. But he took action anyway. Gideon was scared, but he trusted God. He was frightened, but what did he do? He puts one foot in front of the other, and he goes to work. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So here's the scene. 
They're there in this village. The sun begins to rise. The smell of ribeye and briskets in the air. What's going on? We having a party today? They get up and they look around and what do they discover? Their gods have been chopped down. Their gods have been destroyed. Their gods have been burned with fire. And they were furious. They say, who has done this thing? Who has, who has destroyed our gods? Now, can I interject something here for a second? If you're serving a god that can be pulled down by a cow, you might be serving the wrong god. If you're serving a god that can get chopped down with a hatchet, you might consider changing gods. We serve a God who defeated death. We serve a God who allowed himself to be sacrificed on our behalf and then rose from the dead on the third day. That's a big difference, isn't it? They say, who has done this thing? Right, the village, they, they start this investigation and somebody ratted out Gideon apparently. Maybe it was a servant. Maybe it was somebody peeking through their window. Maybe they found Gideon asleep, covered in sawdust and cow blood. I don't know what happened. But somehow they ascertained that it was Gideon who had done this thing. They discovered that it was Gideon who had, who had doomed them all by killing their gods. And suddenly what happens? A lynch mob, right? This, this crowd of people, they gather together and they want to they kill Gideon on the spot. They go to Gideon's house and they're banging on his door. And they say, Joash, bring out Gideon, let's kill him. Maybe we can appease Baal. Maybe we can show Asherah how sorry we are. What we're going to do is we're going to chop Gideon down and we're going to throw him on that altar. And so they go and they're banging on the door. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend with himself because he broke down his altar. Now, let me point something out here before we go any further. The people of Israel, including Joash here, they, in all likelihood, had not stopped worshiping God, right? They officially still worshiped Yahweh, and it seems like Gideon from last week's text, he was familiar with the Lord, right? He knew the works that the Lord had done on behalf of the people. He knew about God. It's likely that he was brought up with, with some sort of a, an upbringing in the Old Testament. Many of the people, they still worship God, but they had a little bail on the side. Right, they had a little Ashra sort of as a, an insurance policy, just in case the weather turned bad or whatever. 
right? They hadn't, in their minds, completely abandoned God. In their minds, I think they still thought that they served the Lord, but it wasn't a complete service to him. And remember, scripture says that our God is a jealous God, and he's not going to share our affections with false gods. And as we look at the text here, let's be clear about something. Joash, he's complicit in this idol worship, right? And so most likely Gideon was as well, right? Gideon lived at home with his dad, was part of that, you know, that family culture. Most likely at this point, Gideon, he worshiped Yahweh, but he also worshiped Baal. He also worshiped Asherah a little bit. And Apparently, Joash, while he worshiped Baal, his, his faith in Baal wasn't so strong that he was willing to sacrifice his son for it. And so the guys are there, they're banging on the door, we're gonna kill your son. And Joash comes out and he's standing on his porch, presumably, and he says, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? And the implication is this. He says, look, if Baal is really a God, let him save himself. If Baal is really a God, he doesn't need your help. If Baal is really a God, let him deal with my son. In fact, he says, look, if any of you jokers try anything, you're gonna be dead by morning. And it says on that day, Gideon picked up a new nickname. Jerubel, which means let Baal contend with him. Now this story, it reminds me a little bit of a parable that Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 44. And you can go ahead and turn there because we're going to be there for a little bit. Starting in verse 13. He says, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a, a cypress or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man, verse 15. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a God and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Verse 16, half of it he burns in a fire. Over the fire he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, verse 19, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake my bread on its coals. I roasted his meat and have eaten. 
And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So he tells this little story here. He says, there's a guy, he's a carpenter. And you know, he, he draws up his plans, he sketches it out and he go and he, he finds just the perfect tree out in the forest. And he chops the tree down and he, and he drags the tree back home. And when he gets the tree home, he chops it, in up, chops it in half. And half of it, he says, he, he chops it even more and he, and, he, and he turns it into firewood. And he's making his little cakes on it. And he's cooking his bread on it and he's roasting his meat over it. And the other half, he says in verse 17, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Isaiah is making a point here. He's saying, look, look how ludicrous this is. Worshiping something of your own creation. Look how, look how ridiculous this is. He says, but they don't see, they don't understand. They have shut their eyes. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also, bread on its, I also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And back in verse 17, it says, I think it was 17, he says, a deluded heart has led him astray. And that's exactly what happened to the people of God here in Judges. Their heart was deluded. Their heart was deceived. They'd been led astray. The enemy had hoodwinked them. Now, verse 33, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abazarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. So here we see this scene. The Midianites, they begin to gather together. This great mass of people, and they, and they crossed over the Jordan River, and it says they, they camped in, in Jezreel. Now, here's an interesting bit of trivia for those of you guys who like such things. This valley, Jezreel, later on it's called the Valley of Megiddo. And we saw this particular place in our study of Daniel. We, we were talking about, you know, the Seleucid dynasty and all these different dynasties. Whenever they were going to attack each other, they all had to pass through this valley of Jezreel to get to the other side. It was sort of like right in the middle of, of Africa and Europe and Asia Minor. And, and as it happens, there have been more battles fought here in Jezreel than anywhere else in the world. The pharaohs fought there, Napoleon fought there, 
in World War I, Edmund Allenby, he was a, a, a British general. He defeated the Turks there. And interestingly, this, this valley, in Hebrew, it's Har Megiddo. And it's sort of been over time transliterated to our English word, Armageddon. And this place, Jezreel, Armageddon, the Valley of Armageddon, it's the place where Jesus, at his second coming when he returns, he's going to defeat, defeat the Antichrist. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a place that's just packed with history. And sort of a, this just came to my mind, but sort of a plug for that trip we were talking about next November. We'll probably go there when we visit Israel if you guys want to come. So anyway, consider that. Um, Midianites, they're all gathered here in the Valley of Jezreel. And we learn in chapter eight, there were some 135,000 Midianites in total. This was a huge group of people amassed at their border. And things are looking desperate for Israel. This is an undefeatable force. But what does verse 34 say? But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Man, I love that thought. The spirit of the Lord clothed him. Right? It doesn't matter who is against you if the spirit of God is with you. Somebody say amen to that. And that is, that better be Jesus. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I love that idea of, 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 the, of the spirit of the Lord clothing us. You know, when something clothes us, right, it covers us up. We're kind of, we're underneath it. And that's sort of the idea. You know, we have so many faults. We have so many shortcomings. We have so many issues. But when the spirit of the Lord comes on us, when we're clothed in his spirit, those things are covered. And so Gideon, he blows his trumpet. The local people come in. He sends out word. And the people from the surrounding tribes, they all gather together and form an army. And we're gonna learn next week in chapter seven that some 32,000 men show up for battle. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, verse 38, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Sometimes we hear people say, you know, I'm going to pray about this and I'm, gonna, I'm going to lay a fleece before the Lord. You ever heard people say that? That's a very Christian expression, isn't it? You never hear people who aren't a part of the church say, I'm going to lay out a fleece. A very Christian expression. And it comes from this passage. And what it means is they're asking God for a sign. They're essentially saying, Lord, if you want this to happen, 
that means you want me to, you know, whatever. And, they, and so they lay out these scenarios. And it's, it's funny how it works sometimes, by the way. Or it's like if a person, if a person has something that they want to do, right? Lord, if you want me to go on vacation to Hawaii, give me a sign. Let someone say good morning to me sometime this week. And if it's something they don't want to do, Lord, if you want me to sell my house and move to Burma and be a missionary, let a midget in a mauve smoking jacket riding a blind goat start eating my roses at 9.30 this morning. And it's sort of like we use this idea of a fleece to try and manipulate what God's will is for our lives. I know all you guys are thinking of is a midget in a mob smoking jacket now. I apologize. We try to use these things to kind of manipulate what we think God wants from us. But this whole laying out a fleece thing here in Judges, it was really a lack of faith, not an act of faith, right? Because the Lord had already given him a sign. The Lord had already spoken to him repeatedly. The Lord had already revealed what his will was. And Gideon says, well, let me double check, Lord. I am kind of questioning what I already know that you told me. So here's what I'm going to do. And if you really think about it, it's kind of ridiculous. He says, I'm going to take a piece of sheepskin. And I'm going to lay it on the ground. And if in the morning I wake up and the sheepskin is wet and the ground is dry, then I know you're speaking to me, Lord. And sure enough, in the morning, the ground was dry and the fleece, it wasn't just damp from the dew like Gideon had asked. It says it was so wet that he wrung it into a bowl and enough dew came out to fill the bowl. Now understand, that's not a natural amount of water from morning dew, right? This was a supernatural fulfillment of Gideon's request. Then Gideon said to God, verse 39, let not your, burner, your anger burn against me. That's always a bad thing to say to God. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So Gideon says, Lord, I don't want you to get too upset. But... I have one more request. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you know, I'm really not sure yet, Lord. Maybe somebody was walking by the fleece with a glass of water and they tripped. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe it wasn't really a miracle. Can we do it again? But let's, let's flip it this time. Here's what I'm going to do this time, Lord. I'm going to lay the fleece out on the ground. When I come out in the morning, I want it to be a mud pit. And I want the fleece to be all dry on top of it. And it was so. And Gideon says, 
I guess it really is you, Lord. Now, Gideon did show a lack of faith here. But I think maybe we shouldn't be too hard on him. Right? Gideon didn't have the scriptures like we have. Gideon didn't have the continual indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have. Right? He didn't know God like we do. And in a sense, Gideon is asking God to reveal himself. Gideon is asking God to reveal his character and his nature and his attributes. Remember, Baal and Asherah, they were gods of nature, right? They were gods over the forces of nature, right? They were the gods who who controlled the weather and the rain and fertility and all those things. And in a sense, Gideon here is asking God to circumvent nature. He's asking God to do things that are contrary to nature. He's asking God to show himself sovereign over nature. He's asking God to show whether or not he rules over nature. And this reminds me a little bit of Mark chapter 9. Remember Mark chapter 9, there's this man, and he's got a a, a demon-possessed son. And the guy's describing the situation. He says, Jesus, here's what happens. You know, my son, sometimes he'll, he'll just throw himself in the fire and he gets all stiff and, and he's got all these symptoms. And he says, if it's possible, can you heal my son, Jesus? Can you heal my boy? And Jesus tells the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. And in the next verse, the man says this. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He says, in essence, you know, I I believe in the Lord, but I still struggle sometimes. I believe in God, but I still have doubts. He says, I believe, but help my lack of faith. And I think that the Lord is looking for that kind of spiritual honesty, isn't he? And I think the same thing is going on here with Gideon. Gideon says, Lord, I believe, but I'm struggling with doubt. Lord, I I, I believe and I want to believe, but I lack the faith. Can you confirm yourself to me again? And what does the Lord do? He complies, doesn't he? He confirms himself to Gideon. Now let me say this. Gideon was not perfect. Right? Gideon here, he wasn't excited about what the Lord was calling him to do. Gideon's faith wavered. But Gideon obeyed the Lord. And as we're going to see in the coming chapters, God was faithful. And he did amazing things through Gideon. I want to circle back to a a couple things as we close. We saw in that verse in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 20, it said a deluded heart led them astray. And about two-thirds of the translations there say a, a deceived heart rather than a deluded heart. And they mean the same thing, right? Except deceived is a little stronger, I think. And... And what's sad here 
is this guy that Isaiah is talking about, this guy who, who made his own little God, note what it says a little earlier in verse 18. It says, for they know not, nor do they discern. For he, God, has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts so they cannot understand. Do you see what happened here? The people rejected, in this story in Isaiah, the people rejected God for so long, so vehemently, with such intensity, that he finally gives them over to what they want to do. He says, okay, is this what you want? Fine, you've got it. You reject me over and over and over again? Fine, that, I'm gonna turn you over to what you wanna do. And we see this happen a number of times in scripture, don't we? Remember, I think the most obvious one is, is Pharaoh. Remember, Moses is going to Pharaoh, and he's saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. It says that he hardened his heart against God. And then the plague would come. And this happens a few times. And then a little bit later on, what does it say? It says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's not to say that, that God forced Pharaoh to make these ungodly decisions. What he's saying is God just sealed Pharaoh in the decisions that he'd already made. God sealed Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness and his rebellion against God. Romans 1.24 kind of talks about this. And it's talking about immoral people in this context. And it says he gave them, the immoral people, over to the lusts of their hearts. They refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge God. And so finally the Lord says, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to force you. If this is what you want, you can have it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this explained a little bit. And in context, it's talking about people in the end times who are, who are rejecting God and following after the Antichrist. And starting in verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now know what it says. Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now look at the order of events. It says that the enemy deceives the people. The people allow themselves to be deceived. And they harden their hearts so much. And he says they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. And so what happens is the Lord just sort of seals them in that position that they have put themselves in. Now here's the warning. There is a point where the Holy Spirit has been trying and trying to draw a person to Jesus, been trying to draw them to a place of repentance, trying to convict them of their sins, trying to lead them to repentance so that they can be saved. And that person continually hardens their hearts against the Lord. And finally, the Lord says, okay, have it your way, sir. 
And he seals them in that decision. It says that he gives them over. He turns them over. The Holy Spirit stops trying to work in their lives. Why am I taking the time to belabor this point? You know, I was actually, I asked myself that as I had kind of written this all out and I was thinking through it. I said, why am I spending so much time on this? And you know, and, and I don't know. I don't know why, except that I feel like the Lord was leading me to discuss this this morning. Because maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to hear this. The Lord has been calling you. The Lord has been trying to get your attention. And maybe, maybe for years, you've been resisting God. You've been pushing back. You've been fighting against him. And maybe you're, maybe you're getting close to that point where the Lord's about to say, okay, fine, do what you want. And maybe this morning, the Lord is one last time trying to get your attention before he turns you over. Let me say this. If that is you, if the Lord is speaking to you this morning, repent. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Secondly, if you're worried that that this might be speaking of you and that you are already too far gone, that the Lord has already given you over, the simple fact that you're concerned about it indicates that your conscience is still soft enough, that the Lord hasn't given you over, that he's still trying to draw you to himself. But don't delay, because it may be that the Lord is giving you one last warning. I know I just said secondly, but the second point that I'm making here, that was secondly on the first point. <laughs> secondly, Gideon had to pull down the idols in his life before he was ready to serve the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What idols do you have in your life that are inhibiting you from fulfilling the Lord's calling on your life? What things in your life have you set above the Lord? What things have you given a position of prominence above God in your life? Are you willing to tear those things down? Are you willing to burn those things? in order to save your soul, in order to serve God. Third and fourth, they kind of go together. I want to point out here that, that Gideon, he, he sort of has this, this tension in his life, doesn't he? Right, he, he wants to walk in faith, but he also struggles with fear. And so he's, he's being pulled in these two directions. There's, there's this desire to serve God, but this is fear of, of what might happen. And I think that a lot of us have this struggle. 
A lot of us, I think, we feel like the Lord is speaking to us. Maybe we feel like the Lord is calling us to take a step of faith, to do something radical for the Lord. But maybe you feel a little bit like Gideon. You know, I'm unqualified. He says, I'm the least of my tribe, and my tribe is the least in all of Israel. Maybe you feel like, you know, I'm not enough. Well, let me tell you this. You are absolutely correct. You are not enough. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not gifted enough. But do you know, (laughs) amen. Oh, that's me. I identify. (laughs) You know who is? God. Look what it says again in verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Does that encourage you? Man, it should. The Lord called Gideon and then the Lord empowered Gideon. All Gideon had to do was walk in obedience. Remember, Paul is talking and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I want to close with that thought. If the Lord has called you to something, take courage. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear. That spirit of fear, that's from the enemy. That's from the world. That's not from God. We don't need to be fearful. We can take courage. Walk in faith. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. Let's walk in those things, amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. And your, your goodness shines even brighter in contrast with our with our wickedness, with our failings, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would, do you just help us? Help us to walk worthy of the calling by which we've been called. Help us to walk uprightly and courageously before you. Lord, and I pray for those who maybe have, have some kind of an idol in their life right now, something that they're putting above you whether it's relationships or work or finances or or whatever it may be, that you would give us the strength and the courage to tear down those things and to allow you to be the Lord of our lives. Lord, lastly, I pray for anyone who, who maybe has been resisting you and fighting against you, that you would, that you would break their hearts with your love and your kindness. Your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And you are a kind God, Lord. We pray that you would help us to surrender to your kindness, your loving kindness and your mercy. We pray that in your name, Jesus.